Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 again. Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going to start in verse 30 and read down through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, verse 30. The Bible says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot, Rahab, perished not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead race to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made. Perfect. So I titled the message this morning simply Faith That Overcomes. Faith That Overcomes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity we have to be assembled together and to open thy precious word. We thank you for this record of those that have gone before us, that suffered, endured the hardships and trials, tribulations of life. But through faith, we're more than conquerors. They overcame. And I pray that you'd help us, that they would challenge us to be overcomers. That it can be done. That we can, through the power of our resurrected Christ, through faith in Him and His shed blood, we can overcome the world, the devil, and our flesh. So Lord, just help us, encourage our hearts. Have your will and way. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we continue it here in Hebrews chapter 11, we see uh, over and over again how faith overcomes. In 1 John chapter 5, you know, we sang the, you know, the song, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And it really, I believe that comes from 1 John chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4 where it says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, and we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. 
And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That word overcometh there means to carry off to victory, to be victorious in. And you know, when a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they, by the power of God, by the power of Christ, are given power to overcome, to be victorious in the war against, that is against us, the war against the corruption that is in the world and the devices of the devil, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are given, we are given the ability or the power to overcome these things. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, as we read this, our text this morning, you know, we're, we're reading about heroes of the faith, and yet in, in this text, there's those that from some would look at and, and say, Wow, did they really overcome? I mean, they were tortured. Sawn asunder. Scourgings, mockings, bonds, imprisonment, stoned. Wandering about, being destitute, afflicted and tormented. Not accepting deliverance. You know, they had a choice. But they chose not to accept the deliverance that was offered. So as we consider this, this isn't the, probably the most um, positive message you'll ever hear. But really it is. It's a challenge to us. You know, this is really a challenge to us in the day in which we're living that we need to, by faith in the Lord, overcome. So I want to see, first of all, our, from, as we consider this passage, and, and, and really we're going to focus on verse 33 in particular, but... Verse 33, the other verses around us give us, I believe, illustrations of what is in verse 33. So that's going to be the primary focus, but we're going to be looking at the whole passage. But we see, first of all, our faith in the Lord enables us to overcome the kingdoms of this world. If you note again in verse 32 and verse 33, it says, What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David, and of Samuel, and and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. Through faith, these men subdued kingdoms. The word subdued means to struggle against, to overcome. They struggled against these kingdoms of the world, and they overcame them. You know, there are many accounts of the people of God overcoming much larger armies than their own. There are many accounts of that in the Scriptures. You know, and and we see... These are spoken of here in this passage that we read. You know, Jericho was a military stronghold, a well-fortified city. And the method to overcome it made Israel look foolish in the eyes of the world. They looked like fools. Verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. So just walking around it seven days, that seems foolish to the world. You know, it would have been perceived as foolish for Rahab to really believe that she could be delivered when everybody else in the city is going to perish. 
I mean, she's still living in a house on the wall. And, and God said, you know, when you go around it the seventh day, seven times, and you blow with the trumpets and you shout aloud, the walls are going to fall down flat. Everything's going to be flattened down. And then to think, Rahab's going to survive that? Think about it. You know, for Gideon to defeat 300, the Midianite multitude with 300 men. For Barak to defeat Sisera and his chariots. Or Samson to single-handedly be victorious against the Philistines. I mean, he took a jawbone of an ass and killed a thousand men. You know, a jawbone of the... You know, I, I don't know how, exactly how big a jawbone an ass would be, but you know, uh, an ass isn't that big of an animal. A jawbone would not be more than a foot long. And he killed a thousand soldiers, warriors, with it. Or Jephthah to overthrow the Ammonites who had Israel in bondage for many years. You know, David was definitely the underdog when you consider the battle between him and Goliath. Now, would you have rooted for that underdog? Would you have thought that underdog was going to win? You know, again, it made, this, this, even this made Israel look foolish to the Philistines to send a shepherd boy with a sling and some stones to fight a trained, seasoned warrior who's nine feet tall. He's like a, he, he's a mean fighting machine. And you're sending a shepherd boy? You know, even, 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 even Goliath said, what am I, a dead dog? That you send a boy to fight with me? Or Samuel in the prophets. Of course, Samuel led Israel into battles and won victories. Elijah overcame 400 prophets of Baal. And the captains and their fifties. Elisha to blind the army of Syria. We heard about this the last couple of weeks. And, and, and lead them into the midst of Samaria in 2 Kings chapter 6. And yet, like the world, Benadad did not learn anything from that. He comes back and besieges Samaria, thinking again he's going to conquer them. And you know what God does? He just sends some noise. He just sends some noise. Some noise of chariots and horses. You know, I have to wonder, I, I don't know, but I have to wonder if Benedict wasn't a little bit fearful to start with. And then the sound of horses and chariots, you know, outside his, 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 his camp, he, he hears these sounds of horses and chariots, and that was just enough to scare them all to death. And they just ran off, leaving everything they had brought. Their food, their provisions, their money, gold and silver, their tents. They took nothing. They just fled. Like a rabbit hunt running from a fox. They fled. You know, God can just use noise. Noise. Truly, 
God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised, God, God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 2, or 1, 27-29. You know, some of you can testify that you struggled against the kingdoms and powers of darkness. We're held in bondage to sin and self. But faith in the resurrected Christ of God has brought liberty to your soul, given victory over death and assurance of eternal life. You know, Romans 8, 37 says, Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, we can have victory over death, hell, and the grave. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 says, For as much then as the children are partakers in flesh of blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all the lifetime subject to bondage. You know, why should I fear? The song says, why should I fear? Jesus is near. He walketh with me. He's delivered us. Second Corinthians 1.10, who, who, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. You know, he, he didn't just deliver us through salvation. He continues to deliver us. He continues to deliver us. He doth deliver. In whom we, we trust that he will yet deliver us. One day he's going to deliver us from this very present evil world. Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. See, it was faith in the Lord that enabled these people to overcome the kingdoms of this world, the powers of Satan, and, and, and the, the onslaught of the world, and it's through faith. See, faith is a means by which victory is received by us. And made ours. It is how it is passed to us or received by us. Faith on our part. It's through faith that we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. See, see through faith, faith enables us to overcome the kingdoms of this world. You know, there are kingdoms in this world. There are really two. There's the kingdom of Satan, which we're all born in. We're born lost and in sin. But by the power of God, we can be delivered from the kingdom of darkness. You know, we talked, you know, Brother Hoyle was talking this morning about how the world is in darkness. They're blind to spiritual truth. Just as the king of Israel was blind to spiritual truth. And the world is in darkness. That's kingdom of darkness. Satan's kingdom. We can be delivered from that. Through faith. You know, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And he said to them that, uh, Brethren, you are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as, as a thief. 
For ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. For we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day, in other words, we're of the kingdom of, dark, of light. You know, it's not hard if you have the light of God to understand what's going on in the world. We're battling against the powers of darkness in this world. But faith enables us to overcome. It gives us victory. Secondly, faith enables us to do works of righteousness. Notice again verse 33. It says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness. The word wrought means to minister or labor or work. It has the idea of service. We are to minister by our work or good works. Galatians 6.10 says, We have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Now when we say we're talking about all men, we're talking about the whole world. We're to do good to everyone. Not just those we like, but those we don't like. Not, uh, maybe we should say it this way. You know, we should not, li- not like anybody. But you know, maybe not, not to those that, that love us, but those that don't love us. We shouldn't have enemies. Now, they're going to consider us an enemy. But we shouldn't look at people that way. They are. They may be the enemies of righteousness, but as we have the opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, and especially unto them who are the household of faith. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. You know, it is good to work with your hands. It's good. The idea here is it's good for you to earn your living. It's good for you to have a good work ethic. That's good. That is pleasing to God. In other words, we'll do that working with the hands, that thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. Now, you know, we often say that, you know, God, God gives us, you know, uh, the ability to earn for two reasons, to live and to give. But it doesn't clarify here that you know, it just says to give to him that needeth. You know, sometimes there's people in the world that need. And, you know, our, we ought to give to the Lord's work, but sometimes we need to just do good to the people, people of the world. Uh, and I'll, I'll expand on this a little bit later. But anyway, Ephesians 6, 6 through 8 says... Uh, Ephesians 6, 6 through 8. I'm going somewhere with this. It says, Not with eye service. Or verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. So we're talking about, you know, we're talking about, we, might, we would say today, employees, be obedient to your employers. That's the idea here. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, 
Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things, or you employers do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening. Know that your master also is in heaven. So a good work ethic is a virtue of God's people that is pleasing to the Lord. We're to do our work, our service to our employers as unto the Lord. Knowing that we will receive of the Lord a reward. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You know, we ought to be noted as people who work for a living, who have initiative. That is, when we see something that needs done or somebody who needs help, we endeavor to help. We don't wait to be asked or told, go, go, why don't you go do that? We ought to look for opportunities. You know, this is kind of the, the light bulb, the epiphany. I said that Thursday night I had epiphany. This is kind of the light bulb moment I had the other day, you know, that something we Bible believers have kind of shied away from is just doing good works for people. I mean, I'm talking about just people, unsaved people, because of the social gospel. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't believe you can get saved by doing good works. That's the social gospel. You know, they, they, they provide things for people, and that's how they're, you know, that's their Christianity. No, that's not, not what the Bible teaches. But, you know, Jesus went about doing good and healing people, meeting people's needs, physical needs. So why do you do that? Do you know when you often, if you have opportunity to meet a person's physical need, you might also have opportunity to offer them or provide them or open their heart to receive some spiritual truth. You know, doing doing good works as a way to minister to people, to make interaction with people. And and it it says here, it says here that they wrought righteousness. Their works were righteous. If you do good works to people that, that with the purpose of glorifying God, those are considered by God as righteous works. Righteous works. You know, maybe a neighbor just needs help with his lawn. Or an elderly person would be blessed with a prepared meal. Or a sidewalk clean when it snows, as rare as that is in North Carolina. Or simply being the best employee in the company, showing initiative, looking for opportunities to serve people who, by the way, are made in the image of God. You know, the word righteousness here refers to just living uprightly. Doing right. And so we ought to be characterized by people that do right. That treat people right. That do good to people. 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You know, we, and we have a purpose to, good, to do good works, that is to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light show shine before men. They may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
See, your, your good works. You know, see, we, we often think that, you know, we, we can't do just something for them. We gotta, we gotta, if, if we're going to do anything, then we've got we to gotta tell them, we've got to be able to uh, share the gospel with them. You know, they might not want you to share the gospel with them the first time, or the second time, or the third time. But you know, the good works that Jesus did softened hearts to him. And they can soften hearts to the message of the gospel. And so we ought not shy away from just helping people, doing good works. You know, this was an astounding testimony to the power of God in the lives of these people. Despite what was done to them, as we read about here in the Scriptures in Hebrews 11, they determined to do what's right. They were not warlike people forcing others to convert or die as their persecutors did. You know, in many parts of the world, that still happens. Balthazar Hubmeyer published a track in 1524 that said this, quote, The burning of heretics cannot be justified by scriptures. Christ himself teaches us that the tares should be allowed to grow with the wheat. He did not come to burn or to murder, but to give life, and that more abundantly. We should therefore pray and hope for improvement as men as long as they live. If they cannot be convinced by appeals of reason or the word of God, they should be let alone. One cannot be made to see his errors by fire or sword. Unquote. And a characteristic that you will read about of, of these people uh, during the, the Middle Ages and, and the, the uh, 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 the Waldensians, for example, uh, in, in the, the Alps, in the, in the mountains of Italy, was they did good works. They were, they were good people. In page 82 and 83 of uh, Brother Alexander's book, The Waldensians, it says this, quote, And the Archbishop of Torn, a Catholic church leader, said this, their, quote, their heresy accepted. They generally live a purer life, purer life than other Christians. They never swear except by compulsion. And rarely take the name of God in vain. They fulfill their promises with punctuality and live for the most part in poverty. They profess, profess to observe the apostolic life and doctrine. They also profess it to be their desire to overcome only by the simplicity of faith and purity of the conscience and integrity of life, not by philosophical niceties and theological subletities. In their lives and morals they were perfect, irreprehensible, and without reproach to men, addicting themselves with all their might to observe the commands of God. Unquote. And this is the testimony we have recorded here of these people. You know, it, it says they wandered in deserts and mountains and, and dens of the caves of the earth. It wasn't because they were loiterers. They wondered about it because they were fleeing for their lives. 
They, they turn the valleys, the mountainous valleys of northern India into fertile fields. Hubmeyer, he was said to have baptized in a short few years 6,000 believers and published 16 books. But because he was a threat to the state church, Roman Catholic church, he was burnt at the stake in Vienna in 1528. Three days later, his wife was drowned in the Danube. You know, the Waldensians, the peoples of the valleys of northern Italy and southern France, were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Methods of torture were dungeon, dark, cold, rat-infested disease without proper food and water, starved to death of filth and disease, strangulation, burned at a stake, burned in the woods, They'd hide in the woods from their, from their assailants and, and, and the thickets of the woods. And so to, to destroy them, they'd set the woods afire and burn them to death. Burned at the stake. Hide in the thick, uh, you know, impaled, burnt with pitch. Cover them in pitch and set them on fire. Cast down on the rocks, dragged with animals, horses. Uh, beating with burnt logs or cut in pieces or flayed to death. These are all methods of torture used. But these people were known, again, for their works of righteousness. Page 78 and 79, again, of this book. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it gives a testimony. It gives a testimony of a husband and wife that the husband was first arrested and uh, in a town of Corrigan, and he was a French fugitive named Mathorin. And the commissioners enjoined him to, to abjure, that is to deny his religion, if he would escape death. He preferred to die. They said to him, we, quote, we give you three days to reflect, said they, but after that time you will be burned alive if you refuse to come to Mass, unquote. The family of Torrin was more distressed than himself. He had married a Valdez, or a Waldensian woman. His wife applied to the commissioners for leave to see him. Quote, they said, provide you do not harden him in his errors, I, they said, said they. I promise you, she replied, that I will not speak to him except for his good. The commissioners never thought of any greater good than life and conducted the young woman to prisoner in hope that she would persuade him to prolong his days by recantation. But the courageous daughter of the martyrs dreaded on the contrary that her husband might be induced to follow that course of affection out of affection for her or through human weakness. And the good which she wished to do him was to confirm him in his resolution. Accordingly, says our old chronicler, she exhorted him in the presence of the commissioners, that is the authorities, as earnestly as possible, steadfastly to persevere in his religion without putting the death of the body, which is a brief duration in the balance against the eternal salvation of his soul. The commissioners, transported with rage on hearing language so different from what they expected on her part, loaded her with reproaches, but she, unmoved and earnest, continued to address her husband, saying to him in a firm, gentle voice, quote, Let not the assaults of the wicked one make you bend in the profession of your hope in Jesus Christ. They said, Exhort him to obey us, or you shall be hanged, both of you. 
And let not the love of this world's possessions make you lose the inheritance of heaven, said the Christian woman to her husband without hesitation. Heretics, she-devil, they exclaimed. If you do not change your tone, you will be burned tomorrow. She replied, would I have come to persuade him to die rather than to abjure? If I could myself seek to escape death by apostasy? You should fear at any rate the torments of the pile. Her reply was, I fear him who is able to cast body, both body and soul into the more terrible fire than your billets. Blessed be God. Then she said, Blessed be God, dear husband, because having united us in life, he will not separate us in death. And the story goes on. It says the two martyr spouses had a last evening of prayer and meditation to spend together on this earth. The next day, the 2nd of March, 1560, a pile was formed public square of Corinthian, and there those worthy confessors of the gospel died, holding one another by the hand, and with souls united to the love of the Savior. You know, these people, despite the pressures, the coercion, the threats of death, they wrought righteousness. They did right in the sight of the Lord. Then I want to show us the third thing. Faith assures us of the promises of God. And look at verse 33. Again, it says, Who through faith have subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. Obtained promises. Also, verse 39 and 40. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, the passage doesn't particularly... And it also talks about a promise made to Abraham in, in the early part of the chapter. But in verse uh, 33, it says, obtain promises. In verse 39, it speaks of a promise. So, as we consider this, you know, I'm a, there's some promises that are, that are promised. But there is one particular promise that is greater than all. And it says in verse 40... And I think this is the key. God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, he's talking about the they is the Old Testament saints. Us is the New Testament saints. That they without us should not be made perfect. You see, it is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin that is that which perfects us makes us perfect in the sight of God. You know, without Him, we cannot be justified. We cannot be declared righteous. We cannot be made perfect in the sight of God. You know, Hebrews 10.14 tells us that, that by, uh, for by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So it's Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, and His offering Himself for, for, for our sin that has perfected us. Us in the New Testament and them of the Old Testament. They could not be perfected until Christ was offered as a sacrifice for sin. Because we know from Hebrews 10.4 that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It was only a temporary covering. That's why Ephesians 4 tells us that he led captivity captive. We believe that you know, the Old Testament saints were confined in Abraham's bosom or 
It was called paradise, which was in the heart of the earth, until Jesus rose from the dead. Because they couldn't enter into the heaven itself with the Lord until Jesus, until the perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed for the sin of the world. And so they were confined there until Jesus was offered as a sacrifice for sin. Then he emptied that place and took it with him to heaven. Now the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, they without us could not be made perfect. Now, do you ever think about the fact that those Old Testament saints were made perfect the same day we were? I mean, our Savior died the same day their Savior died. You and I were perfected the same day they were. That's why he says that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Now, you maybe hadn't received it yet, but he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And our sin was paid for the day that Jesus died. And we are all perfected by the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He was the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 that would bruise the head of Satan, destroying the power of death. He was the promised seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith, and to seed, not, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. See, this is the great promise that they all look for. They all look for that promised seed, the seed that would bruise the head of Satan, that would destroy the power of Satan, the power of death, that he held over mankind. He had us in bondage to fear of death. We don't have to have fear of death anymore because Christ has broken that fear. He has destroyed death by his resurrection from the dead. And he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's a promise that they all look for. But a second thing that we have, you know, it says here, God having provided some better thing for us, you know, is it better that, you know, we can, we can look back, they look forward. You know, there's a lot of things we have better, but we have the promise of His Spirit. It wasn't something they had. And it's the Spirit that gives us assurance of resurrection to come. You know, it, you really, is you, if you study the scriptures closely, you'll come to understand that we are privileged to live in the greatest time period in history. We have, we, 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 we have recorded for us a complete Bible. A complete revelation of God. And up until New Testament times, man never had that. He had some Old Testament scriptures. We have the printed page. You know, we, even even in, in more modern times, we have the, the, the ability of printed page and access, and, you know, everyone has access to the scriptures, to the Word of God. And up until the printing press, men didn't have that privilege. It was just a few who had the scriptures.
we also have the Spirit of God dwelling us, dwelling in us, assuring us, guaranteeing us of the redemption of the body which is to come or the resurrection. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 through 14 it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. He's made known unto us the mystery of his will. Uh, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both with her in heaven which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purpose, purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. See, we have been to revealed to us God's will and God's ways and God's, God's program has been revealed to us in the Scriptures. Jesus Christ revealed God to us. The revelation. You know what revelation means? It means to reveal. And you know the revelation, the book of Revelation really reveals the true Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord. The God-man. Who's coming in judgment and righteousness. See, we have all that. We have all that. And then we have the earnest of the Spirit. That word earnest, it's a gift. It, it's, it, it's a pledge or a promise of a foretaste, a pledge of future blessedness. It's like, you know, you, 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 uh, uh, if you want to buy a house, one of the things that people want you're going to sign a contract that they're going to sell your house, they want some earnest money. That earnest money is a pledge that you are going to provide the money for them to purchase their house. It's an assurance. It's a guarantee. You know, 1 John 4, 13 says, Hereby we know that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is not only our comforter, He's our guide, He's a helper, but it's His presence that assures us of the redemption of the body or the promise of a new body, the resurrection. And so we have this promise of the Spirit. But there's also the promise of the righteous judgment of God, which is to come. Notice verse 38 and 39 of our text, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These all, having attained very good report through faith, received not the promise. You know, one of the promises of God to his saints is that one day justice will be served. You know, Jesus is called the just one, the just one, in several places in the scripture. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, he said, uh, Peter here preaching says, but ye denied the Holy One and the just. And the just is a name given to Jesus Christ. It's not a quality or characteristic trait. It's a name given to him. It's capitalized. 
And he said, you deny the Holy One and the just and desire to murder to grant unto you. Acts twenty two fourteen. 14, Ananias is speaking to Saul of Tarsus after he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen thee that thou shouldest know his will and see the just one. Again, it's capitalized. Speaking to Christ. The just one. And should it hear his voice. See, he being the just one will reward us, us and the world, according to our works. Whether they're righteous or whether they're unrighteous. There's going to be a just reward. Look at Revelation. The book of Revelation talks a lot about this. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? You know, this is kind of described for us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10. Where Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and he says, Seeing it a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall reveal from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, when he shall, become, shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all of them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And of course, this, this destruction, this punishment, or this meeting out of judgment is described for us in Revelations chapter 19 through chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 11 through chapter 20 and verse 5, we see judgment is handed out both to the unrighteous and to the righteous. Justice. Judgment. Because he is the just one. He's just. In, and I read all of it for sake of time. But verse 15 of Revelation 19 says, out of his mouth, of course, out of the the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. With it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a water of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which proceedeth 
sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You know, these are the people of whom he says, Hebrews 11, the world is not worthy of them. You know, to the world, we're the scum. We're the off-scouring. We're a problem. You know, who, we who believe men ought to be free to make their own choices concerning life, property. We have been considered enemies of the state. Now you say, yeah, but in America it isn't that way. It's becoming that way. It's becoming that way. More and more. There are many places the world it already is. Did you realize it used to be that way in our country? You know, in every colony of the colonies of America, there was a state church. And Baptists were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, whipped almost to death. John Clark fled persecution in Boston, as did Roger Williams. Obadiah Holmes, in September 15, 1651, was whipped in Boston Square almost to death. Isaac Backus, pastor of the Baptist Church of Middleborough, Mass., was taxed, seized, imprisoned, released without paying taxes or compromise, labored all his life seeking religious liberty, never to see it come to pass in his life. They were disenfranchised. He was accused of being a Tory. You know, these are the kinds of things that used to go on in America. You know what? We're going back to that. We're going back to that very quickly. You know, what the world really thinks of us was fitly stated by our governor's wife back in November of 2020 for what she said about a group, Christian group, peacefully protesting in Raleigh. She referred to the kid as a brainwashed and the group as a bunch of clowns and gave them the sign of international ill will. Now she apologized for it, but that is what the world thinks of us. That is what they think of us. Your brother Alexander reminds us in his book on the Waldensians. As he, he refers to this passage where they wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth, he says this quote, These words are just as true of the Valdez as they are the Old Testament prophets. God no only wants his people to look at his martyrs. He intends to use their testimony in the lives of believers. These martyr stories are given in Hebrews 11 to demonstrate true people of faith. Believers are expected to look at these people of faith and be challenged in their own faith. God's people should read Hebrews 11 and see what it truly means to stand for God, and then prepare themselves for the possibility of a coming persecution in their own life. If persecution ever comes to the readers of this text, may it be known that the devil and his minions are no respecter of persons. And please remember, dear reader, that the history has taught us that women and children are tortured right along with preachers, men, and boys.
It says the author will continue to preach on the sacrifices of the martyrs to prepare this soft generation to face a deadly evil that may await the Lord's churches just around the bend. Our children should know that there once lived people who gave their lives and their all for Jesus Christ. Maybe then they will realize the great worth that must be placed on true faith. You know, 1 John 3.12 says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? So why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. See, the reason the world hates us is our righteous works expose their evil. Exposes their evil. You know, righteousness is exposing the evil agenda of this wicked world. And don't think that the world's going to give up with the pandemic. You know, this is all, if you, if you watch news at all, you'll see this everywhere. The next pandemic, next excuse for lockdowns, you know what it's going to be? Climate change. You see, we have been coerced into compliance by a so-called science. You know, Biden is already calling for lockdowns for climate change. This, this is an article titled, Coming Soon, Climate Lockdowns. It's in The Hill. And this was in February of 2022. 2nd of February, just put out. These past two years have been a checklist for the worst impulses of government and public sentiment. COVID allowed for supposedly temporary measures to morph into two years of emergency restrictions. But what if the COVID was the only opening act, another proclaimed crisis in the main event, implementing significant racial partial restrictions one by one in the name of the common good can allow for encompassing government controls that result in relatively little backlash. Fear over climate change could lead to long-term soft lockdowns, giving the precedence of immense growth of government power and significant support for sweeping state actions. This isn't a right-wing fever dream. Calls for harsh government measures in the name of saving the environment are already in the parlance of influential organization and figures. In November 2020, the Red Cross, the Red Cross proclaimed that climate change is bigger than the, COVID, than the threat of COVID and should be confronted with the same urgency. The Red Cross. Bill Gates recently demanded dramatic measures to prevent climate change, claiming it would be worse than the pandemic, despite millions of people having died of COVID from former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, last year predicted that climate deaths will dwarf those of the pandemic. Uh, despite uh, lockdowns, which significantly reduced carbon emissions during 2020, could be the solution. After all, the EU's climate service gloated the first COVID lockdown may have saved 800 lives. What would climate lockdowns look like? Most likely, cities and states would begin a gradual and discreet ramp-up of restrictions. During the early days of the pandemic, millions of Americans worked from home. This would become permanent. Uh, such taxes could be play, imposed upon companies, limiting driving or air miles. You know, already, the government's already in, talking about instituting all these things. Drive to work in a car, you get hit with a tax. Children could be impacted by climate lockdowns, too. 
uh, India is already using a version of this concept to crack down on smog pollution. And, and this article goes on. I don't have time to read it all. But, but significant measures are already being planned to combat climate change. California will ban the sale of gasoline cars in 13 years, as will Germany. Britain plans to do the same in just eight. While deaths from natural disasters have fallen by two-thirds over the past five decades, mostly thanks to technological interventions, elitists insist that climate change is the biggest threat modern humans have ever faced. Climate lockdowns and other restrictions will be framed as saving the people of the United States and the world for themselves. What goal could be more noble? You know, isn't that the same jargon they use to justify the COVID lockdowns? We're saving people and injecting them with poison. This is what's coming. Maybe I'm a prophet of doom. But you know what? God's going to have the final say. And the world hates us. Do you know what you're going to be called if you don't submit to climate change? You're going to be called a domestic terrorist. By the way, if you oppose critical race theory in school, you're already considered by the Justice Department a domestic terrorist. But we have the promises of God. You know, we may suffer here in this life. But that has been what the people of God have done. And they've endured. They've endured. They didn't accept deliverance. They were offered deliverance. All they had to do many times was offer a little incense to the emperor or deny the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll let you free, or so they would say. But as the lady said, Shall I die in apostasy? Shall I not fear him who had the power to cast into hell more than ye? See, faith, faith in our God enables us to overcome the pressures that the world's going to throw at us. And they're going to throw it. But we need to keep our focus on the Lord. Let's pray.